the What Would It Take podcast is co-produced by Anabaptist World and me, Ben Tapper. The views expressed here are my own and do not necessarily represent the official positions of Anabaptist World. To learn more, visit anabaptistworld.org. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the What Would It Take podcast. In last episode, we spent some time asking the question, what would it take to make our relationships work? We explored relational norms, we explored the individual and collective understandings of relationship, we looked at different examples of healthy relationship or relationship in general in the biblical text, and we really covered a lot of ground. It was kind of a a deep dive, I threw you into the deep end, I guess is what I'm trying to say. This week, I want to continue the topic, but I want to look at some of the more practical examples of why just taking the understandings about relationships and norms that were handed down to us just won't work. And specifically, I want to note why it won't work for individuals, but also why it's a problem for our society on the whole. So if you haven't listened to the previous episode, pause this, go back and check it out. If you have and you're ready for more, then keep on listening because we've got more to talk about as we ask the question, what would it take to make our relationships work? Okay, so in the last episode, uh, we talked about how in religious spaces, particularly in evangelical Christian spaces, but I would even argue that for the most part, depending upon where you live, in the U.S. Uh, writ large, traditional heterosexual monogamous marriage is still the primary relational form that we're expected to build our families and structure our lives around. Now, is anything wrong with that form of being in relationship? No. If that works for you, if that is an, uh, an active choice you're consenting to and making, if it aligns with who you are, Uh, and allows you to have your needs and desires met, then that's amazing. Go for it. The problem with making that the default uh, mechanism for building a family and structuring your life is that it excludes a lot of people, right? Um, Assumed monogamy in and of itself excludes a lot of people because there are many people who don't want to be in a monogamous relationship, There are many people for whom that doesn't feel good or right or in alignment with their values. And so if we just assume that uh, the best, most logical place to start building a family is in a monogamous marriage, we're already excluding everyone that doesn't really mess with monogamy like that. And I would argue that's a problem. Whether you agree with them or not, we shouldn't just exclude people uh, as a rule of thumb. Like We don't have a good reason for excluding those people and depriving them, so why do it? Secondly, um, we really privilege marriage in our society in ways that I don't think we should. Because by privileging marriage, we're excluding people who live together that are not married. And maybe you're thinking, well, Ben, yes, that's actually the point. We don't want people to live together that aren't married. And to that, I'd respond, okay, I hear you. I see you. And while that can be a moral norm and ethical norm for you, why are you forcing that onto someone else? And as, as a society, why are we forcing that onto someone else? It feels coercive, and that's problematic. And, and, and if you're not with me, I'll explain what I mean by it feeling coercive here in a few minutes. So just keep riding with me. 
Secondly, it excludes other living arrangements, such as long-term roommates and multifamily homes that aren't blood-related. That's also a problem. Thirdly, prioritizing uh, marriage in society primarily and disproportionately impacts uh, black and brown communities and the LGBTQ community. So let's unpack this a little bit more. The reason I think all this is problematic moves beyond just our individual choices and into what we believe and uh, the policies we make as a society. Because our assumed views affect and determine who we elect into office, which then affects and determines what policies and laws are created. So what do I mean? If you do a quick Google search for legal benefits of marriage, you'll find a pretty comprehensive and exhaustive list. And that list will include things like, um, if you're married, you can file joint income tax returns. You can inherit a share of your spouse's estate. You can receive social security, Medicare, and disability benefits. You can obtain insurance through your spouse. You can receive retirement benefits for a deceased spouse. You can take bereavement leave. You can visit a spouse in the ICU even during restricted hours. You can file for joint adoption. You can receive a share of marital property if you get divorced. And, and these are just a small example of the legal benefits to being married. It's just a small sample of the benefits and privileges that are afforded to married partners. Now, I'm not saying those benefits and privileges shouldn't be afforded to married partners. I, I have no objection or no, no problem to that. What I am saying is that Marriage is not the only foundation around which we build our families and seek economic stability. However, our laws and policies and procedures don't reflect that. Because truthfully, in some communities, marriage really was never the primary way that we built our families, organized our families, and sought out economic stability. So if our goal as a society is to create communities and spaces that are just and equitable, then we've got to understand our understanding of what relationships look like and thus what family and community get to look like. I was recently listening to one of my favorite podcasts. Uh, it's called Today Explained and it's by Vox Media. And they had a an LGBTQ activist named Kenyon Farrow on the show. And Kenyon used an example as he was talking about uh, the same topic. He used an example to illustrate his point that I want to borrow because it was just so simple yet so genius. So Kenyon, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to borrow it for a second. And the example that Kenyon used to talk about the need to rethink and reimagine our understanding of what family could look like or what community could look like is the show The Golden Girls. Yes, you heard me correctly. I'm talking about the Betty White, thank you for being a friend, Golden Girls. Because this show is an example of an alternative family lifestyle and relational dynamic. And actually, it is an example of a growing trend here in the U.S. As per usual, art imitates life. And here's what I mean. In the U.S., it's becoming increasingly more common for senior citizens to come together and cohabitate and share resources. They don't live near other family members, so they become each other's primary caretakers. But since they may not be in romantic or sexual relationships and they aren't blood relatives, they're not eligible for the protections that usually come with marriage. 
But the question I want to ask is, why? So even if you don't know any senior citizens that are living in this sort of uh, lifestyle, let's, let's look at the Golden Girls as an example, recognizing, of course, that they're fictitious, but probably not too far off base in a lot of ways. And let's ask some questions, right? Why shouldn't they be eligible for some of these same protections? Did they love each other any less than one might love a blood relative or a spouse? Nah, not at all. Was their relational dynamic less healthy or more dysfunctional than your average family or spousal dynamic? Nope. Did they support one another any less than your traditional family configuration? Not in the slightest. So again, I ask, why shouldn't they be eligible for some of the same benefits that you would get from traditional marriage? Because look, y'all, if we're truly interested in creating an economic system that's equitable and just, there is really no reason why folks that are in situations like the Golden Girls or folks that are in dynamics and family units that are ethically non-monogamous or folks that are part of the LGBTQ community or just people that don't want to get married in the traditional sense for whatever reason, there's no reason they shouldn't have access to the same benefits and protections for their families that married folks get. There just isn't. The trouble is, our economic system is designed around heterosexual marriage and the nuclear family. I'm sorry, I misspoke. It's designed around white heterosexual marriage and the white nuclear family. You got to be precise with your language, you know what I mean? Now, I say that because there are plenty of examples of government policy and practices that are designed to undermine black and brown families. And if I'm being honest, this isn't just true for black and brown families. This is also true, as I've mentioned throughout this episode and the last episode, for large segments of our LGBTQ community. But for the time being, let me just give you a few examples of the ways that our society and our policies have worked to undercut the nuclear family in black and brown communities. Let's talk about mass incarceration. You're not excited? That's just me. Okay, well, uh, you get to listen, I guess. So according to the Sentencing Project, here are some key findings from their 2021 report on state prisons. Black Americans are incarcerated in state prisons at nearly five times the rate of white Americans. Nationally, one in 81 black adults in the U.S. is serving time in a state prison. Wisconsin leads the nation in black imprisonment rates, with one in every 36 black Wisconsinites in prison. Great job, Wisconsin. In 12 states, more than half the prison population is black, and those 12 being Alabama, Delaware, Georgia, Illinois, Louisiana, Maryland, Michigan, Mississippi, New Jersey, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Virginia. Seven states maintain a black-white disparity larger than 9 to 1, those seven states being California, Connecticut, Iowa, Maine, Minnesota, New Jersey, and Wisconsin. And finally, Latinx individuals are incarcerated in state prisons at a rate that is 1.3 times the incarceration rates of whites. Ethnic disparities are highest in Massachusetts, which reports an ethnic differential of 4.1 to 1. Now, why does this matter? This matters because... Incarceration takes adults out of their homes, which means it takes them from their families, which means that it also removes earning potential from a household. If a parent's taken out of the house, you not only lose their income, but you also lose their presence and their support if you have children. This could mean that the remaining adult or adults might have trouble keeping their jobs 
and simultaneously being present and attentive to the needs of the children, which could put them at risk not only for unemployment, but also for involvement with the foster care system. So you can see how this has a cascading effect. And then even once you're released from prison and you can come back home, you still face hurdles finding gainful employment, or you're subject to constant monitoring through probation and parole, in which an infraction could send you back to prison. And this just exacerbates the insecurity that you're feeling and makes it more difficult to truly get ahead, even if there are multiple adults in the home. So this one thing, mass incarceration, which disproportionately affects black communities and brown communities, is working to undercut the supposed support for the traditional nuclear family. Another example is immigration policy. Now, there are countless stories about Hispanic and Latinx families that were torn apart by unjust immigration policies and practices. And if you're not familiar with those stories, I'm just going to share one that still sticks with me to this day. Now, I've shared it on this podcast before, but I think it's worth repeating. Here in the Indianapolis area, there was a woman named Erica, and she was brought to the U.S. by her parents when she was five years old. She grew up in Indiana, graduated from high school here, got married, had two kids, and was an active member of her church. When she was 35, her husband got pulled over on his way to work, mind you, and he got pulled over because he had a tail light out. Now, once they realized he was undocumented, they detained him and sent him to a detention center in Chicago so he could await trial and deportation. So in a matter of hours, during what should have been a normal, routine, workday morning, they went from a two-parent, two-income household to a one-parent, one-income household. To make matters worse, immigration and custom enforcement agents attempted to arrest Erica as well later that morning, but she was able to resist detention and get legal help. However, she was given an ankle monitor and required to attend weekly hearings about her case. And each time she went to her hearing, she didn't know if she'd be detained and deported as well, leaving her children in legal limbo. So she was terrified. After several months of this, Erica was able to secure passports for her children and she packed them up, left their Indiana home, left the state, the place, the city she'd spent 30 of her 35 years in to drive down to Mexico to a country she didn't know, to a a place in a city neither her nor her husband knew, and her children certainly didn't know, to start life over. In a matter of months, this stable, church-going family was completely upended. And they should have been the epitome of the type of family that our system is designed to protect and promote. Married, two kids, active in their church, the definition of a nuclear family. But they were undocumented and they weren't white. See, this is what I mean when I say our system is designed to benefit and protect the white nuclear family. And because our current system leaves so much to be desired, we have to rethink and reimagine how we understand relationships. It not only impacts our individual sense of fulfillment and well-being by allowing us to take ownership over what we need and create the relational dynamics that work best for us, but it also impacts our collective well-being because we create laws based upon what we believe is or should be normal. And this usually means that anyone who exists outside of that limited scope of normality is marginalized, excluded, and removed from the benefits and privileges that many of us take for granted. 
And frankly, I don't want to live in a society that allows so many people to be excluded. I want to live in a society that is expansive. I want to live in a society that promotes imagination and creativity. I want to live in a society that supports people, regardless of what their relationship structure is like, regardless of their racial or ethnic background, regardless of their gender identity or sexual orientation. And I want to live in a society that is rooted in justice, equity, and collective well-being. So my hope is that after listening to me talk about this for two episodes now, you're beginning to understand why it's so important for us to challenge the norms that we hold around what relationships should and shouldn't be, and what they should or shouldn't look and feel like. Because we will promote the norms that we accept. And as we begin to reimagine and rethink and explore what's possible, we can invite that same work, that same curiosity, that same sense of exploration into our legal system and begin to transform our practices, our policies, and our laws so that they are more equitable and just for everyone. So what would it take to make our relationships work? Well, I'll remind you what we said last episode, that we need curiosity for ourselves and our partners. We need to improve and expand the ways that we communicate, which includes deep listening to understand and listening with empathy. We need to focus and prioritize our own inner work and our relationships with ourselves. And we need to invite more flexibility into our lives because we are all changing constantly whether we admit it or not. And that flexibility will allow us to endure and to transform as we need to. And as we do that and we, as we invite those things into our own individual lives and our uh, individual communities and family dynamics, we can then begin to transform, to change, to challenge, to rethink, and to reimagine the laws, the policies, and the procedures that are put in place so that they are more expansive and just for everyone and not just for a select few. So now we have some idea of what it would take to make our relationships work, and we even know why we should do it. So, what are you waiting for? Let's get to work. Thank you for listening to another episode of the What Would It Take podcast. I really appreciate your support, so take a moment and leave me a five-star rating on Apple. And if you have any questions or comments or you want to connect with me, you can find me on Instagram at Thoughtful Revolutionary. You can find me on Facebook at Benjamin J. Tapper, or you can send me an email at BenjaminJTapper at gmail.com. I appreciate your support. If you've got ideas on topics you want to hear more about, let me know. Until next time, take care, y'all.